Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. I'm just, how do you believe all the stuff that's going on and how it's ending up being reported? Sad news today. Uh, Mitch McConnell, apparently, the turtle was standing at the podium. He's 81 years old. And suddenly he freezes during a press conference, and they have to help him away from the podium. Now, let me just explain this. This was, remember a couple of months back, he fell down during some dinner in, in D.C.? So this was him talking to reporters, and abruptly he takes this really long pause, and then the Senator John Thune had to help him steady himself and get him away from the podium. And then John Thune continued with the press conference, um, and then Mitch McConnell returned and insisted that he was okay and that he could do his job. But if you look at the video... It's very concerning. I mean, he looks like uh, Joe Biden. This sort of long pause where he starts to look like, uh, you know, what's going on? And John Thune leans in, and then they decide, we got we to get him out of here, you know? It's just crazy. So that was one headline. Of course, I'm driving back to the house, and I hear on Dan Bongino's show that the judge in the Hunter Biden plea deal, I mean, he was standing in front of a judge copping a plea to some lesser charge of lying on a federal application or a gun application. But basically, he was getting a sweetheart of a deal. And the judge, Mary Ellen Norieka, says, whoa, 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 and starts asking questions. And now, trust me, this was not something anybody in the administration expected to happen. Certainly, Merrick Garland did not expect this to happen. So all you're going to hear, and she then said, no, I'm not accepting this plea. At which point, Hunter Biden pled guilty, or not guilty, whatever he did, he pled not guilty to the charges. After he'd already arranged to accept a plea for the charges, now he pleads not guilty. Now, Look, you don't have to be a rocket scientist, as I often say, to see that things are turning against the President of the United States and his family. There's a reason. They know he can't win. And they really don't care what happens to him or Hunter Biden because Democrats are the most insincere, the most, what's the right word, predatory human beings on the planet. So he pleads not guilty because the judge will not accept the plea. 
chaos, absolute chaos right there at the courthouse. And, you know, this is, this is great drama. He struck a deal with the government until the judge just asked a few questions about the terms of the agreement. And this was at a hearing in federal court. He was supposed to plead guilty to two charges of failure to pay taxes under the deal. He pleaded not guilty to those two charges. Instead, until the two sides can meet and address the charges. At, the at times, the judge was really upset because she felt she was being asked to act as a rubber stamp. Those were her, her words, as a rubber stamp on the deal. So now they got to go back to the table and hammer out the terms and provide the judge, Norieka, with more information. Without me saying, I'll agree to the plea agreement, how do you plead? She asked Hunter Biden, and he said, not guilty, Your Honor. So now he'll reverse that plea if a new agreement comes to pass that pa passes the judge's, uh, you know, well, I don't know how to explain this. I mean, it's really an unexpected result. All you're going to hear for the next probably year is that Norieka was appointed by Donald Trump. But that has nothing to do with anything, and I'll tell you why. A friend of mine sent me a listing that the Federal Elections Commission puts out on people, whether it's judges or people who are nominated. These are the donations that Mary Ellen Norieka, the judge in Hunter Biden's case, has made. I'm just going to give you 10. Uh, she donated money three to four, five times to Tom Cotton for Senate. She no donated money to the Romney for President campaign. She donated money to John McCain in 2008. And then she donated money to Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. And she donated money to the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee so and to Rick Santorum. So she's pretty much an equal opportunity donor, meaning she seems to be a person who's more concerned with the rule of law and with fairness than she is with what party, what initial comes after someone's name, which I find absolutely novel, breathtaking, and I can't wait to see the onslaught that she's going to have to withstand. But when you do that to somebody who has a conscience, like apparently uh, Judge Mary Ellen Norieka has, they tend to dig their heels in a little more strongly. That's just me, you know, supposing. But you don't tell a judge, well, we think you did that because you uh, were appointed by Donald Trump. No. She obviously did it because, like most of America, she looked at this sweetheart plea deal that Hunter Biden was given, and she said, whoa, whoa, why? What is this? I wouldn't accept this if it weren't the president's son, so I'm not going to accept it for the president's son. Bravo. Bravo. That's all I can say. It's, it's nice when every now and then you have somebody... Stand on principle. She pressed both sides about the terms of the agreement. 
this agreement was between U.S. Attorney David Weiss of Delaware, who, by the way, was a Trump appointee, but who was kept on by President Joe Biden to, wa to look over this case. She expressed clear concern about how two separate deals, one regarding the unpaid taxes and the other a gun possession charge, potentially intersected and her purview over them. So she quizzed the lawyers about whether the gun charge would be diverted until Biden fulfilled certain terms. And the agreement would have her act as an arbiter if the president's son violated the deal over 24 months. She expressed concern that the judiciary would not normally oversee such an agreement and that it was the responsibility of the executive branch to bring charges. Now, Hunter's lawyer, Chris Clark, explained that because of tremendous political sturm and drang surrounding the president's son's case, that element of the agreement would help ensure that it wouldn't become more politicized. More politicized? How much more politicized can it get? The seated president's son committed multiple infractions of the law that would land you and me in jail. There was a Wall Street Journal editorial today that quite clearly spelled out how you and I would be shackled and led away. So, hey, I think uh, she had every right to say, I don't know, I, I don't like this deal. I certainly don't like the fact that you're asking me to be the monitor on a deal that I didn't create. There were a lot of points of disagreement and uh, We'll see. We'll see how this turns out. Now, I'm ever hopeful that justice will be served, but I'm also a realist. And the odds on that happening are still slim. But they're no longer slim to none, which is a big, a big advance, really. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm gratified that there might still be a human being who is you know, just just uh, honest. Okay, I just got a text from Congressman Brian Mast. He's going to call in now. Um, so I'm going to take a break, and when we come back, I'll be talking with Representative Brian Mast. You stay right where you are. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. So there are a whole lot of men and women sitting in the United States Congress, and I have absolutely very little affection for any of them, with the exception of four Florida representatives who I think are exemplary. And one of the ones who's definitely uh, top, tops on my list is Representative Brian Mast, who I prefer to refer to as with his rank in the military because I'm much more impressed by that than I am by getting elected to the, I guess now, it's not the 18th anymore, right? You're in the 21st Congressional District? It's, it's now the 21st. Yeah. It used to be Lois Frankel's number, and now it's, uh, now it's our number. And that's a good thing. Listen, and, and I'm hoping that uh, soon, whatever Lois Frankel, whatever her seat is, that's going to become uh, red as well. But, you know, we're just waiting. It must be insane. God's ears. Yeah, really. It must be insane up there right now as this uh, scene just unfolded in a federal courthouse where 
the judge refused to accept the plea on Hunter Biden. I mean, what are people saying in the halls of Congress? I think you're seeing it as a good day for two entities, basically. One, it's maybe the first time in the last four, five, six, seven, eight years that we're seeing justice applied equally. Okay, he's not going to get a sweetheart deal that lets him off for all the other things that he's done around the globe. So, all right, that's a positive day for justice. I guess you could look at it that way if you want to say a glass half full. And probably the other entities that are looking at it as half full would be folks like Gavin Newsom that want to run against Joe Biden. Uh, They're saying that's that's a glass half full day for them as well. Yeah, and Newsom's on the cover story on a bunch of different sites, and uh, and I'm sure that plays into it a lot. But, you know, I'm watching the news headlines just as before I came on the air, and one, um, Mitch McConnell has to be led away from the podium by John Thune because he starts gazing out into space or whatever. You must feel like a spring chicken up there. Everybody's in their 80s. Yeah, what you're talking about is a bipartisan problem that extends beyond the executive branch. It's not just Joe Biden uh, that's shuffling around here, can't even read a conversation with foreign diplomats, much less have a a, a independent, thoughtful conversation with, uh, with anybody else. That's happening with senators. There are representatives on both sides that are just not in places that they are making coherent, thought-out decisions, even if, you know, despite the fact whether they're smart or not, they're not in the right place to be making national security decisions for the citizens of the United States of America. I mean, we're looking at people like Dianne Feinstein. We're looking at Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer. and, And all I keep thinking is, this is not the Supreme Court. It's not a lifetime appointment. How does the public allow this to keep happening when there are young men and women who are capable of serving, but they can't go up against these incumbents? I don't have to tell you how much money it costs to run a congressional race every two years or a senatorial race every you know four years, six years. These, we've got to get the money out of the politics, Brian, or Congressman, or, or we're doomed. You have to be an independently wealthy person to to run for Senate, pretty much. Um, I'm not that, right? I'm a retired staff sergeant from the United States military. Uh, But you want to run for Senate? Yeah, you better have $100 million that you can put into play uh, in order to go out there and be elected to one of those seats. And that's not true representative government uh, of, of the people, by the people, and for the people. It's Hey, you got to be in a place number one that you can start out by buying your seat in order to get the party machine behind you. Yeah, and, and I have to say, you know, this yesterday I get all these Department of Defense uh, press releases and and whatever the Secretary of Defense, who half the country couldn't tell you Lloyd Austin's name, but uh, you know, I get all these releases, and I got something yesterday which outlined our new what we're now sending to Ukraine. Okay, and after having heard that our own uh, larders are empty and we have American soldiers who have to go into places all over the world without sufficient armors, without sufficient vehicles, and we're still sending stuff to the Ukraine. Uh, Congressman, you need to tell them that we're not, they're not winning. The Ukrainians are not winning this war, and we're throwing our military equipment and money in there. 
I'd say a couple of things on Ukraine. I want Ukraine to win. Uh, I want them to beat the pants off of Vladimir Putin and the Russians. But uh, I've said this from the beginning. It's why I haven't supported, you know, one of the reasons that I haven't supported uh, appropriations or funds or dollars going to the Ukraine. And that is, uh, I'm saying this to you as clearly as I can. There is no articulable plan, no articulable national security objectives that the administration is saying, hey, if you give us these dollars or give us these tanks or give us these uh, dispensers with submunitions and things like that on or, or, or anything, that the war will end in this time frame or that the United States of America will see Vladimir Putin out of power or Russians will even be forced to leave the Ukraine or, or any of the other places like Crimea that they've been, or that there'll be demilitarization uh, for Russia in some form or fashion. Uh, this specific benefit to NATO. The, the United States is funding something not to the point of a national security objective, but just to the point of, well, uh, this seems like an okay thing to do. And literally, I, I may have told you this before, uh, there was a time that I sat down on the floor and asked some Democrats last year when Democrats were still in the majority, hey, what are we buying? What are we paying for here? Mm-hmm. And the literal answer from these Democrats was, well, I just think actually it was the Democrat majority leader. He said, well, I just think that whatever doing has been working, so let's just keep doing that. That was a literal answer to what we were funding. Uh, what is, whatever we're doing has been working. So then if it's working, why did we have to send additional munitions for Patriot air defense systems, Stinger anti-aircraft systems, additional ammunition for high-mobility artillery rocket systems? Now, I didn't, I didn't serve. I didn't get a Purple Heart like you did. But I don't think I need that to understand that when we send all this equipment, I mean, I'm looking at this list, it's, it's frightening. It's literally three pages long. Mortar rounds, support vehicles, bridging systems, post, uh, command post vehicles, troop-launched, optically-tracked, wire-guided missiles. Wh- what do we have left when Russia and China, which are now doing joint military uh, rehearsals, what do we have left to protect ourselves? That's my question. No, it's, look, it's a fair question, and it uh, has certainly exposed uh, weaknesses in uh, our stockpiles of different munitions, uh, strengths and weaknesses in some of the munitions that are out there, and their use against uh, various Russian platforms. But again, you know, to this point, it all goes to these that have this, uh, this non-thoughtful lack of analysis idea that you know, well, what we've been doing has been working, so let's just keep doing that. That's, that's their, their thought-out answer instead of saying, all right, this is something that we need to accomplish for the United States of America, for our national security objectives. We believe that if we uh, put this many dollars into this plan of attack, that this will occur in this time frame. Uh, these are the worst-case scenarios. These are the best-case scenarios. This is why we think that it won't be the worst-case scenario, and it will actually turn out like this concept of operation. Those things are not playing out. And, and that's dereliction of duty on, uh, you know, and, and not what's owed to the American people, their tax dollars, or anybody that, that serves in the military. Now, you have served in Congress under two commander-in-chiefs, one being Donald Trump and now uh, Joe Biden. 
the, the you have your finger on the pulse of the military. Not only are you a veteran, but you are very involved in veterans' issues. So you know what the pe- military is thinking. They have to be frantic looking at this. I mean, I, I have a friend who, like you, served, and his father before him served, and his son was uh, going down to the recruiting office, and the father stopped him and said, I can't let you go. I don't know what's going on. The Pentagon is is upside down. I mean, this is very demoralizing for the military itself and then for those of us who, uh, we want to be protected by the military. We don't want to be worried about them. Well, what you're saying is literally, this is a heartbreaking thing yes. to, to, to myself. I risk my life for my country and I love this place. And, and I would still serve again, but I understand the argument, and I've, and I've heard it plenty. You have abysmal recruiting numbers across the board. I was sitting with the, the families last week of those that were killed in the withdrawal of Afghanistan, mm. and these families across the board are, are not families that are saying, you know, hey, even though we lost our, our, our son, our daughter, uh, we know, uh, you know, it meant a lot what they were doing, and, and you know, we know that they would do it again across the board. These are families that are saying, what, what did our kids lose their lives for uh, mm-hmm. other than uh, a lack of planning and, and bad decision-making, and we wouldn't send them again if we had the choice. That's, that's not usually what you hear from, no. from Gold Star families, despite the, the heartbreak that goes along with with losing somebody, that's not usually what you hear your gold star families say. Mm-hmm. And you go beyond this, and I can tell you that time and time again, the biggest questions that's being asked to me are about wokeness in the military from Ugh. families that are thinking about sending their kids off to service. It's not what are the objectives, what can they accomplish, the pride that they're going to have uh, because of their service to this country. It's the wrong questions being answered or asked because it's, it's the wrong things that are happening within the United States military. And I'll give you one other point on this, and this is to bring in a third administration, the Obama administration. I literally could not count the number of people that retired under the Obama administration that asked me, hey, do you think I can get President Trump my retirement paperwork and have him cross out Obama's name and sign his name? Wow. Yeah, no, I believe it. I, I really do. And, you know, then I look at we've got a new nominee coming up for chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who's more concerned with how many minority or transgendered um, pilots there are than just having the best pilots. His, his, the, the exact words that were stated were, there's too many white males in the cockpit. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that is the most insulting and the most demoralizing and demeaning thing you could tell anybody who thinks that they can depend on the United States military. It's, it's atrocious. It really is. You know, Joyce, we see it time and time again where they're looking at filters for bringing people into the military or hiring or anything else. And they say, and literally, they say the, the filter, the number one filter, has to be obvious appearance, oh. right? And it can't be, you know, that they can't tell what you are. The, the basket has to look diverse, number one. And then after it looks diverse by appearance, then they will think about merit. And that is the direction that they're – maybe they'll think about merit after that. That's the direction that they're, they're trying to take every single bit of hiring uh, or promotion or retention within the United States government and the United States military. 
And that goes exactly against what takes place with our adversaries in saying, we just need the best, the strongest, the smartest person for the job. It doesn't matter to us what you look like. But look, the fact is, we've seen this from this administration since day one. We should be proud that there's uh, an African-American man in the Supreme Court and be proud that there's an African-American female uh, as a Supreme Court justice. But to think that the administration would go out there and say, I'm only going to hire an African-American female. And if you're a male or you're white or you're Native American or you're Asian or Islander or, or something else, you need not apply. And not just you need not apply for Supreme Court justice. But by the way, you shouldn't apply for vice president either because I'm only looking for an African-American female. That is entirely against the American way. Yeah, no, it's actually racism is what it is. And, and the American people are tired of it. I know you know that. But what is it that keeps your Democratic colleagues and some Republicans as well from understanding that when you look at these polling numbers, and I'm just going to talk about Florida because you're the representative from the 21st District. I'm a resident of Florida. But when you look at Donald Trump's numbers over everyone, I mean, it's not just the second uh, being over 27 points over Ron DeSantis, but he's 50 points ahead of everybody else. And, and, and the uh, people sitting in Congress don't understand yet that the American people are pushing back big time. And they don't care. You can indict them 17 more times. They're still going to turn the uh, tables upside down in, the, in, the, in this election. And I, I think I'm sure you know that. Yeah, I, I think the American people, and, I, and you know, full disclosure, I'm on Donald Trump's team. I'm sharing his, his veteran's arm of his campaign. And, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is the American people are saying, I want, uh, you know, to, I don't think this is going to become a campaign ad, but I want American narcissism. Yeah. I want who's ever leading our country to, no matter what, be the proudest American to, to cloak themselves in the red, white, and blue and stand up for the red, white, and blue above all, no matter what is happening. And, and they're not getting that pride, that, that chest something out of this administration or the Democrat Party across the board. You're literally getting the exact opposite. Yeah. Well, I, I give you credit. I don't know that I could sit there and remain calm and, and focused, <laughs> surrounded by the dysfunction that the rest of us are looking at. But I will tell you this, you're on the right team. And I think the American people are going to do what they did in 2016, and they're going to say, we really don't care who you want to be president. We will send the man that we want, or woman, that we want to be president. I mean, if, I, if I'm any judge, um, it's looking really good for our guy. But even if I'm wrong, they better get the message. You better make sure that you, can, you stay on the wall. Uh, I know you will, because the American people don't have many heroes left, and, and you know, you're one of them. So just keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, Joyce. Always a pleasure. You take care. Good to All talk right. to you. Good always. And, you, you know, I'm, I'm just so tired of them. I really am. I, I sit around and I look at these numbers and I look at these headlines and all I want to do is, is throw up. Can I say that on the air? I just did. Let me take a break. I'll be right back. You know, one of the things that I haven't had much opportunity to talk about is what's going on in Israel. I talk about it a little bit, but I never get to say everything that I want to say. Um, and so I'm, I'm really considering devoting my next No Restraint podcast to that subject. And look, if you don't want to hear it, you don't have to listen to it. But there comes a, t a point when you look at what's going on there and you say to yourself, how does this 
really, how does this affect the rest of the world? You know, because for years, uh, there have been a lot of things under the surface that happened between the United States and Israel. And they don't make news headlines. You know, what makes headlines is, uh, no, he didn't move the embassy, or yes, he did move the embassy, or yes, they love him and they named Trump Village after him. That kind of stuff gets headlines. But what doesn't get headlines is the stuff that really, 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 really matters. And I was looking at a story. For years now, Israel and the United States have had this kind of running battle about how a citizen who from Israel who's flying to the United States has to get a visa. And it's a very long, drawn-out process. It's actually a very difficult process because I have a number of friends who are Israeli citizens and who travel to the United States. They are originally from the United States and or, or else they are now spokespersons for Israel and they come here like a Carolyn Glick or people of that nature, born in the U.S., moved to Israel. And they just changed some of this, some of the law, okay? And what they did is they made a, a new policy, I guess that's what it's called, that allows people to fly to the U.S. with relative ease. The United States is loving it. You know, it's just what they wanted. As part of the agreement, though, Israel and the United States will allow their citizens to travel to the other country with almost no limitations, so that means Israel will let their citizens come into America. Okay, that's a huge change, and let me tell you why. Back in March of 2017, the Knesset passed a law that said that no one who had ever acted against the state of Israel could come into the country. They could deny entry. According to the law, Israel's border authority could refuse entry to any foreign citizen if they had a reason to suspect that the foreigner poses a security risk or is a supporter of the BDS movement. And under the, the, that particular law, uh, you know that there was, they blocked Peter Beinart, they blocked Noam Chomsky, I'm trying to think who else, Simone Zimmerman, and Representative Rashida Tlaib. Representative Ilhan Omar and some others. And additionally, the Interior Ministry of Israel has a blacklist of organizations whose members are barred from entering the country. So according to statistics that were released by the Israeli Interior Ministry, the reasons for denying entry to citizens from Western countries where pro-BDS activism is widespread are different from the standards applied in regard to other countries. So since that law was passed back in 2017, the percentage of applicants who were denied entry from the United States and Europe due to security issues or their support for uh, BDS is 20% higher than the average of other countries. Well, guess what? They're trying to survive. The danger to Israel from the BDS movement and from the incitement against Israel by the likes of Rashida Tlaib and, and, and Ilhan Omar, is it really worth it? This is my question. And I would pose this if I had an interview with one of the Israeli ministers or with uh, Bibi Netanyahu or anyone else. Is it really worth it to make it easier for their citizens to come to the United States if you have to 
accept anybody who wants to come into Israel, regardless of what they know or what they do. You know, this, this, is, a, a, this is a big deal, and nobody's talking about it. Nobody, uh, except if you read like, uh, you know, one of the Jewish publications. I think I read an article about this in JNS. And yet, the mainstream media will uh, become convulsive talking about the most stupid, horrible things. I'm looking at, at headlines right now that are grotesque to me, that anyone in their right mind would think that this matters and should be above the fold in a headline is so sad to me. We're not going to discuss how now anybody who hates Israel can get into Israel quite easily. No, we're not even going to talk about how there was chaos at the courthouse when Hunter Biden's plea deal fell apart. Uh, instead, you know what the two headlines are? And this is scary. Gavin Newsom moves to negotiate Hollywood strikes? Does anybody in my listening audience, or really does anybody in their right mind care how long actors and screenwriters stay on strike? They can all, you know, stay on strike forever, as far as I'm concerned. Nobody cares. Nobody feels sorry for them. The other big headline, and this really, it's just, it's just crazy. Kevin Spacey cleared of sexual assaults, grateful to the jury on his 64th birthday. Sinead O'Connor dead at 56. This is the story. McConnell Health Alarm finally made the front page. Syphilis emergency looms in the United States of America and Fed hikes interest rates to 22-year high, all the way down at the bottom of the page. What is going to affect your life more? Whether Rudy Giuliani admits that he made false statements about election workers or whether the interest rates are at all-time highs. Do you really have concerns over Prager University curriculum being approved? Let me ask you another question. Do you worry about how many Secret Service agents have been bitten by Joe Biden's dog? Actually, the way I've been feeling about the Secret Service lately, you know, Maybe the dogs are the dog is actually uh, you know trying to defend the the White House. You don't know. And and just in case you didn't have enough garbage, ooh, Mick Jagger turns eighty. That actually depressed me. But <laughs> he's still uh, he's still he's still uh, kicking or whatever he does, strutting around the stage. And then way at the bottom, way at the bottom, a, a, a news report that Jesus is apparently rising in power in Hollywood. Way under Gavin Newsom going to speak to the strikers. Maybe the powers that be ought to pay more attention to the fact that Sound of Freedom, the James Caviezel movie about uh, sex trafficking, and basically about God. I did receive my T-shirt yesterday that says, God's children are not for sale. 
is definitely should be a wake-up call to Hollywood, to Amazon Prime, to Netflix, and to all the rest of them. Jesus is coming back. Just saying. Coming back. Anyway, don't forget, coming up at 4 uh, o'clock is Eric Erickson. And then at 7 o'clock, we start the whole evening crew comes aboard. And tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., we'll be back with Jen and Bill on the morning show. I still have one segment left, so don't touch that dial. I'll be right back. I really tried my hardest to pay less attention to what I hear and more attention to what I think. Now, I know that sounds kind of narcissistic, but you'd almost have to be a narcissist to survive in this industry that I'm in. All of a sudden, they're finding out in Hollywood and just about everywhere else that, well, I don't even know how to say this without insulting half of the audience, but uh, you know that's the risk I always run. What they're finding out in Hollywood is that there's power in the name of Jesus. That's right. There's power because you have this series, The Chosen, right? Now, I'm not one of these people who watches The Chosen, although my friend pointed out, how could you not like it if you didn't watch it? Well, I don't like, I watched a little bit of the first season and I just, it's not for me. I don't watch anything. So it's not surprising that I don't want to watch that. But think about this, okay? Here's this show that literally nobody wanted to finance. It got crowdfunded. They went online and they tried to raise money to make it. It's now in its fourth season, okay? Jonathan Rumi, who I never heard of in my life, he's the guy who plays Jesus, um, is filming the movie in like Midlothian, Texas, about 25 miles south of Dallas on a 1,200-acre summer camp that's run by the Salvation Army. And so now the kids who canoe at the camp are canoeing on what is serving in the series as the Sea of Galilee. And there's a replica of Capernaum. And, you know, this is, this is a big hit. The first three seasons garnered more than 110 million viewers worldwide. They sold the distribution rights to Lionsgate. That's the same company that put out, you know, the Hunger Games. And then one of the summer's biggest box office hits and surprises was Sound of Freedom, starring James Caviezel, who was, of course, he played Jesus in Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Only now he plays Tim Ballard in, as the federal agent who was trying to rescue kids from sex trafficking, right? And the movie Jesus Revolution if everybody just thinks back a little bit, that was released about the hippies who all got on board in California, it surpassed expectations to become Lionsgate's biggest release in over four years. Christ is a hot commodity these days in the entertainment industry. I'm just telling you. And if you need more proof, consider that MGM, 21st Century Fox, and Sony Pictures have each launched their own faith-based studios. Martin Scorsese is planning a new film about Jesus. Arthouse director Terrence Malick, new film. Netflix is working on bringing more faith-based content to its platform as well. So in this godless society, which is pretty much what it looks like uh, when you look at Washington, D.C. and all the state capitals, in this godless society, the average American 
is looking for some faith. The average American is trying to restore their faith, to reframe Christianity for a modern age and to turn around this depletion in the believers. It's a very powerful movement. And that's why I tell you, watch carefully at how the evangelicals will come all on board with Donald Trump, and they do have to swallow hard sometimes. But they know they need to be protected, and they don't believe anybody else is going to protect them. That's the truth. This is a powerful movement. Most people don't know it's happening. So I thank you for your time this time. Until next time, my plan is to be back here tomorrow at 3 o'clock, if it be his will, and he delays his coming. What lies behind us and what lies ahead of us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. So wherever you are, just be yourself. Everybody else is taken. God bless you and God bless the United States of America. See you tomorrow. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.